a chicken Kiev would have survived the Mongol invasion. I'm Joe Fulgham. Isn't that just like a Mesopotamian to bring a pillow to a knife fight? I'm Torin Atkinson. The Moriori, the merrier. I'm Kevin Leeson, and this is... Caustic Soda! Part 4 of the Caustic Soda Aside Guide. Mm-hmm. Genocide. Oh, there shouldn't be too much of this... No. Who would possibly no do that No human beings are evil no. enough that no. they would actually try to kill an entire uh, race of people? Genocide. Killing all the genos in the world. <laughs> Gino Vanelli. Yeah. Uh, that's the only one I can think of. Gino Carabello. All the old wrestling fans will get that. He was yeah. the he was the schlub who would get beat up by people all the time, mm-hmm. but ended up becoming a... A uh, kind hilarious of a cult people. figure, a cult figure. Like he was small and not that muscular, and he, all he was was a jabroni to get beat up. But people started thinking it was funny to root for him. Right. Yeah, so there's a short period of time when yeah, I assume there must also be a Gino who started a pizzeria. Um, d- d- Gino, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mrs. Vanelli. <laughs> the word genocide was coined in 1944. Wow. What? Oh, so before that, we didn't kill peoples. Like in large groups. Uh, well, no, we, we called it people side. <laughs> uh, 1944 was coined by Polish-born U.S. lawyer Raphael Lemkin in his work Axis Rule in Occupied Europe in re- reference to Nazi extermination of the Jews. Okay. Uh, literally means killing a tribe from Greek genos, race or kind, plus oh. a side. Uh, he didn't get it quite right, though, because if you were uh, like a Latin... If you were Latino. Academic. Right. If you knew how to actually, you know, form words out of right. Latin roots or whatnot, it would have actually correctly been genticide. So he has mixed a Greek root with a Latin root at the end, and it should have been both Latin. Yeah. So it's like uh, polyamory, mm-hmm. which is also a Greek and Latin mixing, meaning it's totally wrong. Yeah, and it's made by dumb people. So... <laughs> uh, Scalarophobia is the fear of bad men or being harmed by wicked people. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Genocide, according to the 1948 United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, is acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, such as killing mm-hmm. members of the group, causing seriously serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of that group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life, Calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring oh. children of the group to another group. Just Ooh. trying to end an entire culture, both genetically and socially. Correct. I have a feeling this is going to be a terrible episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of rape talk. Oh, trigger yeah, alert. Trigger warning. Trigger alert. Yeah. Trigger alert. I have a feeling that by the time this uh, episode uh, ends, uh, we won't have any friends. <laughs> It's a distinct possibility. We are not going to talk about the Holocaust. Okay. We're not going to talk about Spanish conquest. Okay. We're not going to talk about the former Yugoslavia-Bosnia conflict. We're not going to talk about Rwanda, Congo, or Burundi. And we're not going to talk about uh, Native Americans or smallpox. Because those are all probably going to make their own episodes. We anticipate that we will be doing an episode on each of those because there's so much material right. that they deserve their own episode. We could almost have a genocide a guide. <laughs> we could almost have a genocide a guide. It's true. Wow. Uh, so pulling all of those out 
We've still got more than enough for still a show. Have at least oh, an hour's worth. More than enough. Oh, humanity. Uh, you are not as nice as you think you are. All right. Context. Huh? Who likes context? I, I love context. I hate not having context. Public service announcement. The eight stages of genocide. Whoa. There's stages? There's stages of genocide. You might be committing genocide <laughs> if... That could totally be a bit. Yeah. The worst bit in the world. If you divide people into us and them, <laughs> you might be committing genocide. <laughs> in 1996, Gregory Stanton, the president of Genocide Watch, presented a briefing paper called The Eight Stages of Genocide at the United States Department of State. In it, he suggested that genocide develops in eight stages. Surprise, surprise. The Stanton paper was presented shortly after the Rwanda genocide. Okay. Stage one, classification. Right. People are divided into us and them. Mm-hmm. How we prevent this, the main preventive measure at this early stage is to develop universalistic institutions that transcend divisions. This is why we should never have sports teams. <laughs> oh, you know well, what? actually, the argument is that the us and them from those sports teams gives you a healthy out for the demand of having that us and them conflict without actually engaging in tribal warfare. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Stage- That's why there's all those soccer riots. <laughs> Yeah, but soccer rights, or would you prefer a war? Like, <laughs> lesser question. two evils, Good Torin. Question. Good yeah. question. Stage two, symbolization. When combined with hatred, symbols may be forced upon unwilling members of pariah groups. Where, forced upon? Wear okay. this Wear this Star of David badge. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wear the, or have a tattoo on your arm. We're yeah. not going to round you all up and kill you. It's just, eh, we just, just need to know who the Jews and the gays are. Just wear a pink triangle. You know, or, we're only level two right now. Or yeah. wear this Calgary Flames jersey. <laughs> Uh, so they put that on themselves. Oh yeah. Uh, to combat symbolization, make hate symbols legally forbidden as hate speech. So sports logos are forbidden as hate speech in, <laughs> in Torn's world. Perfect world. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Stage three: dehumanization. One group denies the humanity of the other group. Members right. of it are equated with animals, vermin, insects, or diseases. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this in many of the other episodes. That this we've done. is the level that the caustic soda hosts have approached when dealing with each other. Mm-hmm. I, I see Kevin as a baboon, yeah, and I see Joe as kind of a marmoset. Well, that's good because you know that uh, doesn't make me vermin, insect, or disease. No, so. you're both above that. Yeah, okay, good. Local and international leaders should condemn the use of this kind of hate speech, make it culturally unacceptable, and leaders who incite genocide should be banned from international travel and have all foreign finances frozen. Okay, these are way, good ways to combat this sort of thing. These are like how do you how did this uh, professor guy have like a Strategy to enact these... Uh... No, that's not his job. Okay. His job right. is just to come up with ideas. Sure. Okay. okay. He's an ideas guy. That's fine. That's yeah. Fine. He makes the report, and then the politicians have right. to decide if they're going to act on it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, stage four, organization. Genocide is always organized. Special army units or militias are often trained in arms specifically for this purpose. Usually called yeah. purifiers or something. Yeah. It's kind of hard to just randomly improv killing all the Jews. Yeah. You have to specifically get together and go, no, they look like this, and these are the people we're going to get. Right, so yeah. they organize. The UN could impose arms embargoes on governments and citizens of countries involved in genocidal massacres and create commissions to investigate violations. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sounds Stage reasonable. five, polarization. Hate groups broadcast polarizing propaganda. Now you're talking about going to the North Pole, which I think mm-hmm. we're already committing <laughs> genocide <laughs> with global warming. Yeah, send send everybody you don't like to North Pole. Yeah, that's 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 polarization as far as I understand. <laughs> Tantamount to genocide, really. Uh, prevention may mean security protection for moderate leaders or assistance to human rights groups. Coup d'état by extremists should be opposed by international sanctions. Mm-hmm. Stage six, preparation. Victims are identified and separated because of their ethnic or religious identity. Concentration camps. Right. right. 
It's uh, you know, I went to camp as a kid. <laughs> did they make you concentrate? Did, did you have to dig your own grave? <laughs> I had to think really hard about digging my own grave. Right. Uh, at this stage, a genocide emergency should be declared. Oh, genocide emergency. Mm-hmm. All right. Stage seven, extermination. It is extermination to the killers because they do not believe their victims to be fully human. Right. It's not murder. Mm-hmm. It's no. extermination. Yeah. It's it's solving a problem. It's, right. you know, uh, cleaning rid of those pests, taking out the trash. This is frightening. Like B.C. Canada got up to six with the uh, Japanese during World War Two. Yeah. We identified and separated them and brought them up yep. to camps in yep. the interior of British Columbia. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. At this stage, only rapid and overwhelming armed intervention can stop genocide. Once you've got to the extermination right. stage, you're beyond pulling it back without actually physically intervening. Right. Uh, real safe areas or refugee escape corridors should be I established. I, I sent a, I sent a pretty nicely worded letter uh-huh. to. Uh, this is going. This starts. <laughs> this is starting out promising. To uh, Adolf Hitler. Oh. Asking him to please not kill all the Jews. Oh yeah, yeah, a sternly worded letter. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, arm- he's like, look, I've already started. <laughs> the ball, the that, wheels are in motion. That ball is rolling downhill. The wheels on the train. And he was are like, literally- if you do all the paperwork, and I was like, <laughs> ah, my weakness. No, doing paperwork was not the Germans' issue. Well, paperwork, they ab- they did very well at. Again, we're not talking about the Holocaust. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. I brought it up, everybody. Stage eight denial. The perpetrators deny that they have committed any crime. Uh, the response to denial should be punishment by international tribunal or national right. courts, human rights tribunals, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So those are the eight stages. Uh, what do you guys think? You think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of like, how it progresses and at what stage you go? I think it's... I as far as I know. Good thing I haven't even thought about such of a thing before. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. As I was reading it, it made common sense. Like, it made sense yeah. to me, right? You're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay, just I can why, see This that is just the first person who actually wrote, wrote, wrote it down, down somewhere. Yeah. yeah, and actually thought about it for more than like eight seconds. This seems like a bad idea. This seems like a worse idea. This seems like an even worse idea, et cetera, <laughs> et, cetera et cetera, et cetera. In the history... I'd like to talk about the Mongols and Genghis Khan. Okay. The Mongols are kind of well-known for genocides. Genghis who? Genghis or Genghis? Khan! <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Genghis. Genghis. Genghis Khan. Be for you. <laughs> that so obscure <laughs> unless you're our age. I'm going to rock you, Genghis Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan, that's all I'm going to do. Genghis Khan uh, united all the Mongol tribes mm-hmm. under one banner, and he had a policy of surrender he, or die. He had a great graphic designer. That's why everybody flocked under his banner. They were <laughs> yes. like, that logo, I'm totally marching under that logo. Was it the furry-brimmed helmet with horns? It was, but it was like so, such clean lines. Nobody right. had ever seen that kind of design before. They're, they employed the policy of surrender or die. The Khan guaranteed protection only to the populace. If they submitted to Mongol rule and was obedient to it, right. terror and mass exterminations of anyone opposing him was their well-tested and successful tactic. Yeah. In that lesser two evils, I think I know what I'd choose. Yeah. Surrender. It's the, you know, the, the Colombians kind of stole it with like uh, silver or lead, right? You either take the money we're offering you or we kill you. Yeah. Take the bribe or we kill you. The Mongolian Empire stretched at one point all the way from Asia to Europe. Mm-hmm. So in China and Korea... The Mongols had a long-standing en- enmity with the Chinese dynasties because Mongol nomads wanted land to graze while the Chinese feudal lords wanted to rule and tax them mm. and imposed forced manual labor upon their, the nomadic way of life. Right. All right. 
So the Mongol Empire under Genghis Khan started the conquest of China with small-scale raids in 1205. By 1279, the leader Kublai Khan had established the Yuan Dynasty, the first time a foreign ruler presided over all of China. Genghis Khan was kind of like a modern-day libertarian complaining about taxation Mm -hmm. and probably proclaiming, I'm going to be free to graze my horse wherever I want. And now that I've trodden all these people, they have to surrender or die and probably pay me taxes. Yeah. Yeah. And just become exactly what he hated. <laughs> As the Mongols spread, their unique form of psychological warfare proved effective at suppressing resistance. Mm. There are tales of lone Mongol soldiers riding into surrendered villages and executing peasants at random as a test of loyalty. Wow. Uh, Wait, whose loyalty? Uh, to see that they the, wouldn't the rise village. up against the Mongols. Okay. He would just walk in and kill people and go... If you guys do anything about this, we're going to come back and kill everybody. Oh, yeah, because it was widely known. It wasn't like, hey, are you loyal? Yeah, yeah, I'm loyal. I'm going to shoot you in the head. I'm, no, I'm loyal. <laughs> I didn't go to move. I'm not going to flinch. No right. flinches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's because it was widely known that a single act of resistance would bring the entire Mongol army down on a town to obliterate okay. it and all its occupants. Mm-hmm. Now I get it. In the Middle East, large areas of Islamic Central Asia and northeastern Iran were seriously depopulated, as every city or town that resisted the Mongols was subject to destruction. Right. The Mongols attacked Samarkand. You got to think there's like, the, the town is like, no, fuck you. And there's one guy in the back. No, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah. I'm, put well, me in chains. Well, no, they had that. The Mongols had a lot of peoples from different nationalities riding with them after they conquered like all right. of Asia. So oftentimes they would send people ahead right. to go into a town and start going like, oh, those Mongols are coming. I hear they're coming. You better watch out. You better really? be ready to surrender. Uh-huh. I think I don't just stand in the town square and go, I hear the Mongols are coming. I was in a town that surrendered and everybody got off okay. You know, you did all right <laughs> under the Mongols. They're yeah, okay, yeah. dude. So you, you should hear, like, hear, think about surrendering. Did you hear what happened to Shelbyville? They resisted <laughs> and every one of them got tied to stakes in the hot sun. Yeah, there was. So there actually was like quite a bit of that going on. Yeah. Like, tied in to lemon it. trees, I heard. And they would do stuff <laughs> like, you know, they would besiege a town and the leader would be like, would say stuff like, yeah, you know, screw you. We can hold out for, we're a thousand year empire and we can hold right. out as long as we like. And, and then, you know, then they would have people inside their own court go, fuck that and stab them. Right, oh, nice. and then open the gates, and so there was a lot of that going on. Okay, um, it wasn't like zero tolerance for the entire population. Well, e- sometimes. Okay, <laughs> depending on the mood. Yeah, like in Samarkand, uh, the Mongols showed up, and they had a retinue of prisoners on hand, so they used them as human shields while they assaulted the uh, the gates. Okay. After the fortress fell, Genghis ordered the people to assemble in a plane outside the city, where they were a plane. killed. Yeah. <laughs> My head planes back. No wonder they did so well taking yeah. over the entire yeah, known yeah. world because they uh, they had air power. All right. No, a, a flat piece of land. Where oh, you a would P-L-A-I-N. Like, uh, uh-huh. Okay. They assembled the entire abit- inhabitants of the city where they were killed and pyramids of severed heads raised as a symbol of victory. Ooh. One story claimed that... How tall do you think you can get a pyramid of severed heads? Well, every level you get when you build pyramids like that gets progressively bigger and bigger and requires more and more because you're you, you know you put one at the very top then you probably got four underneath that yeah and then what do you got uh you're kind of relying on the heads nine twelve or something on underneath that and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger base you're kind of relying on the heads being flat on one side as well otherwise it'll just be a constant rolling like, well you'd imagine oh, it has to be like if you cut them off at the neck then that's the oh that's yeah the the base. Stomach. it's and it'd be a little oh yeah and you yeah you, you wait for the the blood to coagulate a little so it's kind of tacky yeah <laughs> right uh, you know? Step one, do us not having any friends in this episode. <laughs> yeah, you see one of the Mongols standing there just blowing on the on the neck stump, like trying to get it yeah. sticky, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> the one guy with the he's so picky. Uh, it's uh, no, I gotta. I That's want him to look like, like he's smiling. Yeah, got some OCD oh, and... and the guy, yeah, the, the OCD Mongol is like he's there. You guys go on pillage ahead without me. I'll, I'm, I'm gonna fix up all these pyramids. Up these pyramids of heads. There's four here that are slightly off kilter. <laughs> yeah, and they do, do it in pairs. So the other guys like it's like Felix and and, uh, <laughs> and Oscar. And, Oscar. and one guy's just like, oh god, dude, just leave it alone. Who cares? Listen, like, you don't take pride in your work. I take pride in mine. I'm gonna make this. Pile of skulls look just fantastic. He gets all the heads straight. He looks and like the one on top has its like eyes closed and every other eyes are open. He's like, no! I gotta climb up that thing without <laughs> adjusting it. Uh, one story claimed in the assault on Samarkand that Genghis Khan even went so far as to divert a river through the emperor's birthplace to erase it from the map. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like that. That's clever. Yeah. Like, and again, unlike a lot of this that doesn't involve just killing a bunch of people. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm going to wipe out where you were born. He was like writing poems with carnage. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he was an artist. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, the assault on your Gench was the most difficult oh, battle. What about my Gench? <laughs> it's, Stay U- away. U-R-G-E-N-C-H. Oh, okay. I'm, I think it's Urgench. <laughs> uh, this was the most difficult, one of the most difficult battles in this campaign due to the difficulty of adapting Mongolian tactics to block-by-block block city fighting. Yeah, hard to do city fighting on the back of a horse. It's true. Yeah. It's true. But and, and the occupants of the city... Uh, resisted even like, you know, person to person in their own homes, right? Mm-hmm. Once the city fell, the artisans were sent back to Mongolia. Young women and children were given to the, the soldiers as slaves. So you're safe, Torn. <laughs> That's if you determine if they, if according to Mongolians, he was an artist. Mm. It's like, do you paint in blood? No, then you must die. I can learn. And the rest of the population was massacred. The Persian scholar Juvani states that 50,000 Mongol soldiers were given the task of executing 24 citizens each, which would mean that 1.2 million people were killed. While this is undoubtedly... That's if everyone lived up to their quota. Yeah, well, you didn't want to come short on your quota. Otherwise, you become one of the heads. Oh, no. Uh, while this is undoubtedly a historical exaggeration, the sacking of Regench is still considered one of the bloodiest massacres in human history. Uh, in February of 1258, the Mongols sacked Baghdad, Burning libraries, books, literature, and hospitals. Books were thrown into the river in quantities sufficient to turn the Euphrates black with ink for several days. Oh, wow. They are reported to have also used manuscripts as boot repair material. Sure. So not mm. a lot of respect for the written words amongst the Mongols. <laughs> nope. Like when you're riding on horseback across the entire known world, you're probably not carrying a lot of books. Oh, I wonder if there was like a brainy Smurf. Dude, you like, eh, eh, Papa so- Smurf says. <laughs> can somebody carry my supplies? I found a book I really like. You think it's hard to read a book in a moving car. <laughs> Try to read one on horseback. Abdullah Wasaf wrote, oh, I don't know how to do a Middle Eastern. Then don't. <laughs> Could sound a little Scottish. Uh, <laughs> They swept through the city like hungry falcons attacking a flight of doves or like raging wolves attacking sheep with loose reins and shameless faces murdering and spreading terror. Beds and cushions made of gold and encrusted with jewels were cut to pieces with knives and torn to shreds. Oh, I hated those pillows so much. (laughs) Pillow fight. It's like, oh, we brought a knife to a pillow fight. You know, the Mongols (laughs) brought a knife to a pillow fight. Those hiding behind the veils of the great harem were dragged through the streets and alleys, each of them becoming a plaything as the population died at the hands of the invaders. So Baghdad was kind of a cultural center at the time. Right. Mm. Um, Really one of the hubs of the Islamic world. 
Uh, the caliph was captured and forced to watch as his citizens were murdered. Estimates of the death toll ranged from 200,000 to a million. Oh, caliph, just close your eyes. <laughs> the caliph himself was killed by trampling. Close your eyes longer. The Mongols <laughs> rolled him in a rug and rode their horses over him. Oh, wow. As they believed that the earth would be offended if touched by royal blood. There must be... St- you got to think there's a name for that. <laughs> now, we're going to roll you in a rug and then ride horses over there. There must be some term just for that. Fruit roll-up? Fruit roll-up. <laughs> Caliph <Ooh>. roll-up. <laughs> Caliph taquito? <laughs> the quietest. <laughs> <laughs> the Mongol general had to move his camp upwind of the city due to the stench of decay from the ruins. The siege is considered to mark the end of the Islamic Golden Age. If yeah. you put a stick up his butt, you could call it a caliph in a blanket. <laughs> there you go. Uh, a corn dog, if you will. There you go. A caliph dog. Oh, there you go. We're going to corn dog him. <laughs> That's when you roll somebody up in a rug and then tram- ride your horse over. Trample him with go. horses. Uh, so, yeah, Baghdad got it kind of. Got it kind of badly, but you know what? Eastern Europe kind of got it pretty bad, too. Oh. These Mongols got around. Oh, yeah. And this is all like one single campaign. It's like one 20-year-long campaign that did all of this. Yeah. Uh, The Mongols invaded and destroyed Volga, Bulgaria, and Kievan Rus before invading Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, and others. Over the course of three years, from from 1237 to 1240, the Mongols destroyed and annihilated all of the major cities of Eastern Europe, with the exception of Novgorod and Piskov. Giovanni de Plano Carpini, the Pope's envoy to the Mongol Khan, traveled through Kiev in February 1246 and wrote, oh, this guy's from Italy. I could do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mario. They laid a siege to Kiev, the capital of Rus. After they had besieged the city for a long time, they took it and put the inhabitants to death. Uh, when we were journeying through that land, we came across countless skulls and bones of a dead men lying about on the ground. Uh, Kiev had been a very large and thickly populated town, uh, but now it has been reduced to almost nothing. For there are, at the present time, scarce uh, 200 houses there, and the inhabitants are kept in complete uh, slavery. <laughs> I've never laughed so hard about 200 people being kept in complete slavery. (laughs) Well, I mean, and also Kiev was a major city, and now 200 houses are all that's left. Yeah. I do enjoy chicken Kiev from time to time. There you go. Yeah, it's because you like keeping chickens as slaves. (laughs) You monster. In my belly. Uh, Tactics, the Mongol army. Until horrible, horrible freedom. (laughs) (laughs) We're free. (laughs) There's less friends. Macaque. Is that, what it, is that what it sounds like when you poop? Yeah, it does. Tactics the Mongol army regularly employed include diverting rivers into and from cities to either drown or dehydrate the besieged people. Oh, they love diverting the rivers. They do. They do. I mean, once you figure out how to divert a river, yeah. you you're know, probably, you kind of... You're probably doing it with corpses from the previous town, from slave labor from well, the previous town. Yeah, and, or or like you just like do it like, look what we can do, right? Yeah. Like just yeah. kind of showing off it's at like, some point. It's right? like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you yeah. know how to divert rivers, everything looks like something you should divert a river from or <laughs> yeah. through. Uh, they would also ca- catapult diseased corpses over city walls to infect the population right. with disease. Yeah. Some sources cite the use of such infected bodies during the siege of Kaffa as what first brought the Black Death to Europe. Oh. It sounds it's the right time frame. Like we're talking the 1240s. All right. One genocidal quote attributed to Genghis Khan that I particularly liked. This is we, some of us may have heard something similar before in yeah, pop it, culture. It got it got cribbed heavily for pop culture. 
The greatest joy for a man is to defeat his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all they possess, to see those they love in tears, to ride their horses, and to hold their wives and daughters in his arms. How come you didn't do it in the Arnold Schwarzenegger accent? Because that's not our, this isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger said it. It's oh, Genghis Khan. Yeah. I did it in my John Wayne. Oh, all right. From his <laughs> from his Mongol movie that he did back oh, in the day. Okay. The greatest joy for a man is to defeat his enemies. <laughs> <laughs> to drive them before him. Pilgrim. 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 Yeah. Ancient sources describe Genghis Khan's conquest as wholesale destruction on an unprecedented scale in certain geographical regions, even causing demographic changes. According to the works of the Iranian historian Rashid al-Din, the Mongols killed more than 700,000 people in Merv and more than a million in Nishapur. Some historians say the total population of Persia dropped from 2.5 million to 250,000 as a result of the mass extermination and famine. Before the Mongol invasion began in 1205 in China, the dynasties approximately numbered 120 million inhabitants. By the 1300 census, they reported roughly 60 million. Wow, they had censuses back then. Yeah, like oh, yeah. oh, the Chinese, oh, right? The Chinese love their bureaucracy for oh, yeah. so many, many years. Now, so. one of the things important to point out, that doesn't mean that the Mongols killed 60 million people. They figure they only killed 30 million, only. and that 30 million are unaccounted for in the census because they were taken away as slaves. Okay. Right. Oh, okay. So I they like died of loneliness. No, they're like spread out over the entire Mongol Empire, right. you know, being bureaucrats for the Mongolians, okay. right? So it wasn't so bad. I mean, only 30 million died, and then the other 30 million, they were just slaves. Yeah, from, lining. from 1205 to 1276. So that's 71 years they wiped out 30 million people. Yeah. That's, that's a spicy meatball, as the, as the guy from the Pope would say. The guy from the Pope. <laughs> Ladies uh, and gentlemen, the guy from the Pope. <laughs> what the hell? You're a long name. <laughs> Giovanni de Plano Carpini. Yes. I know. Okay. A I'm spicy a meatball. <laughs> uh, about half of the population of Russia died during the Mongol invasion of Rus, and half of Hungary's population of two million died as a result of the Mongolian invasion. Yeah. And also, the Hungarians kind of got the other million probably all got humped by the Mongolians, right? Because that was when they became super swarthy. Okay. Okay. They went from looking European to looking kind of Mongolian, and we um, call that super humped. <laughs> Okay. I'd like to talk about an, uh, a subsequent Mongolian ruler. Okay. All the Mongolians sort of just followed in the template of Genghis Khan. Sure. Yeah, what he did seemed to work. Yeah. Like, if you didn't care about all those other people dying, you were like, hey, look, we established a, a, what we think is a worldwide empire. Yeah. Neat. Let's keep doing that. And so, like, there was a bunch of other rulers that followed his four sons, split the empire up, and it kind of like, right. you know, they weren't this all-encompassing empire anymore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about 100 years later, Timur took over as the, Who's the Mongol ruler. Uh, he his his official name is Tamer Shirin Khan. Okay, uh, but he was known in the West as Tamerlane. Oh, uh, which is a bastardization of Timur the Lame. Oh, uh, the reason he was called Timur the Lame because because in 1363 he tried to steal a sheep was shot by two arrows, <laughs> one in his right leg and another in his right hand, where he subsequently lost two fingers, oh. causing him to be crippled for life. Sheep stealer. But when you ride, if you've got a limp and you're missing a couple of fingers, but all you do is ride a horse across the plains and, like, cut people down with swords, you know, probably didn't, didn't really bother him that much, right? Yeah. 
Hey, he's just more badass. <clears throat> yeah, so he's sort he's of missing parts of his body. Tamerlane was the first emperor since Genghis Khan to really kind of make a giant unified empire again. Uh, when Isfahan surrendered to Timur in 1387, he treated it with relative mercy. But after the city revolted against taxes and killed tax collectors, oh. Timur ordered the massacre of the city's citizens. The death toll reckons between one and 200,000. And an eyewitness counted more than 28 towers of heads constructed of at least 1,500 heads each. 28 towers. Mm-hmm. Towers of heads. And 1398, Timur invaded northern India. He sacked Tulumba and massacred its inhabitants. After Delhi fell to Timur, a bloody massacre began within the city hall, city walls, with their heads being erected like structures. This is all, uh, you know, very similar. Mm. He invaded Baghdad in 1401, so they got invaded in 1240 by Genghis. Then 160 years later, they get a total humping yet again. After the capture of the city, Timur ordered that every soldier should return with at least two severed heads to show him. Many warriors were so scared of repercussions, they killed prisoners captured in earlier campaigns to ensure they had enough heads to present to right. Timur. Right. It's the worst fucking scavenger hunt ever. <laughs> what? Uh, Are you going to bring me head? two heads? <laughs> can I not and Send find... out 50,000 soldiers can, to find two can, heads each. Can I not get a picture of me with... <laughs> with a head in my hand? With a head in my hand or a picture with somebody who's wearing a funny hat? <laughs> Yeah, precisely. Or your arm around a guy, stabbing him in the chest. Yeah. Scholars estimate that uh, Timur's military campaigns caused the deaths of 17 million people, amounting to about 5% of the entire world's population at the time. Whoa. Timur's campaigns sometimes caused large and permanent demographic changes. I would imagine mm-hmm. when you murder 5% of the world. world. There's going to be some demographic <laughs> changes. <laughs> Timur's military talents were unique. He planned all his campaigns well in advance, such as planting barley for horse feed two years ahead of the campaign he would require it for. Oh, wow. Wow. He used propaganda or information warfare as part of his tactics regularly. His campaigns were preceded by the deployment of spies, whose tasks would include collecting information, as well as spreading horrifying reports about the cruelty, size, and might of Timur's armies. Uh, Aside from the evilness, it sounds all perfectly uh, reasonable and rational. Yeah, just there was... If you're going to be... If you're going to do it, you should do it right. (laughs) I mean, he definitely... And I'm I'm air-quoting this. Yeah. Did it right. Yeah. He was good at planning those horrible things he did. Yeah.
clothes all in the mud. Now wipe them off. Now wipe it off. Oh, wipe them off. Oh, wipe it off. I like them nice and clean, so you better wipe them off. You ain't treating me right, Mr. Bud. You dropped my parcel in the mud. Now wipe them off. Now wipe it off. Oh, wipe them off. Oh, wipe it off. Ah, don't treat you, Baba. Wipe them off. Speaking of horrible, this may be the most horrible thing you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> I don't know. We got a whole lot of show left, Torn. Uh, yeah, that's true. I haven't read the rest of the notes. This is 1777 Tasmania. There's devils involved, right? <laughs> yeah. And lots of spinning around and going <laughs> through trees. On January 28th, the British landed on the island. Tasmania was established as a British convict settlement in 1803, and eventually more than 65,000 men and women convicts were settled in Tasmania. Okay. An inefficient penal system okay. <laughs> allowed these exceptionally brutal convicts to escape into the Tasmanian hinterland where they were free to exercise the full measure of their bloodlust and brutality upon the island's occupants. Okay, so the, you set up a penal colony. Yeah. You put them in a jail, uh, but then they just go, nah, I'm out of here. And the guards kind of go, all right. Mm-hmm. And they just let, let them go and mm-hmm. didn't really chase them down. And then they run into an indigenous population. Yep. And then they're mean to them. Yes, the, this would include shooting, bashing out brains, burning alive, and slaughter of aborigines for dog's meat. Oh. Ooh. So your dog's hungry, so kill some people to feed your dog. Don't dogs eat poop? Can't you just feed your dog poop? <laughs> some dogs, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. The colonial government itself was not even inclined to consider the aboriginal Tasmanians as full human beings. Where's What number is that on the list? Like number three or something like that? Well, yeah, of the eight stages. Yeah. yeah. And scholars of the time discussed civilization as a unilinear process with white people at the top, surprise, surprise, <laughs> and black people at the bottom. Who made that, who made that theory? <laughs> I'm guessing it wasn't the black people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, UCLA professor Jared Diamond recorded, tactics for hunting down Tasmanians, including riding out on horseback to shoot them, Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Setting out steel traps to catch them and putting out poison flour where they might find and eat it. Oh, nice. So it wasn't even the joy of the hunt necessarily. It was really no. just about the killing. It was just about the killing. Right. But wait, there's more. It's not just about the killing, actually. There's more to it than that. Because shepherds cut off the penis and testicles of aboriginal men to watch the men run a few yards before dying. Oh, so there was some sport to it. Yeah, there was a little bit of sport. So some people are sporting types, and others are like, oh, I just don't want these aborigines living anywhere near me, so I'm going to leave out some poison flowers for them. At a hill christened Mount Victory. (laughs) I wonder if it was christened Mount Victory before or after they Mm. killed all the aborigines. Mm -hmm. Settlers slaughtered 30 Tasmanians and threw their bodies over a cliff. Victory! (laughs) One party of police killed 70 Tasmanians and dashed out the children's brains. So the police... We're yes. killing Tasmanians. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So this wasn't just convicts anymore. No, killing, killing, killing native people, not just for convicts anymore. No, not just for criminals. That's what they, you think that's what they put on the Tasmanian Tourism Bureau? Oh, maybe. You know, to get the non-convicts there? Oh, Come down and kill some aborigines. Oh, God. We're losing more friends by the word. 
However, punishment in Tasmania was exceedingly rare for whites, although occasionally sentences were handed out for crimes against blacks. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear what those crimes were. Do you think it was for taunting? Do you think bullying on the, on the school ground, did that count? Well, maybe we can make this a uh, fun and horrible guessing game for you guys. Oh, okay. Oh, All right. So if you exhibit the ears and other body parts of a black boy that you have mutilated alive, what do you get for that? Uh, a, a finger wagging? No, it's more than that. <laughs> oh, actually. okay. More they, harsh than finger wagging. Yeah. Tongue lashing. They confiscate your ears because they belong in a museum. <laughs> they will actually flog you for that. You'll get oh, flogged. Okay. All okay. right. It's not going to give the boy his ears or fingers back. No. No, mm-hmm. it sure won't. Now, if you are convicted of tying Aboriginal Tasmanian women to logs and burning them with firebrands or forcing a woman to wear the head of her freshly murdered husband on a string around her neck, how many lashes will you get? Wow. Uh, they had a they had a distinct amount for yeah. that specific? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this happened more than once. <laughs> I'm a, Okay, well, that sounds really a horrible thing to do. Uh, but, whoa, no, but the woman didn't die. So, uh, 100? No, 100 will kill a person, right? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, five. We test that. Five. Uh, 20. 25. Oh, so add, oh just add them together. together. Yeah. yeah. Teamwork. Another European was punished for cutting off the little finger of an Aborigine and using it as a tobacco stopper. Why would you want to use a finger as a tobacco stopper? What do you need tobacco to stop? Be st- no, like what, do you, what do you stop probably... tobacco from doing? <laughs> That's so horrible that you need a severed finger well, from an prob- Aborigine. No, probably it was like in a pipe and he would like tamp it down oh, with it like or a something. Tamper. Okay, yeah. sure. Not a single European, however, was ever convicted for the murder of a Tasmanian Aborigine. Europeans would tie black men to trees and use them for target practice. A uh, tobacco stopper is a device for pressing down tobacco into a pipe. A man called Carrots. <laughs> no, he, he, no wonder he was a criminal. He probably got teased and, like, you know, murdered somebody. Broke him. Parents yeah. did not have much in the way of clever names. Mm-hmm. He desired a native woman, so he decapitated her husband, hung his head around her neck, and drove her home to his shack. Nothing gets the ladies hotter than uh, decapitating their husband and hanging it around their neck. Yeah. Black people were regularly hunted for sport. Call back to our Hunting Humans episode. No kidding. Casually shooting, spearing, or clubbing the men to death, torturing and raping the women, and roasting black infants alive. Ah, nice. Yeah. The Black War of Van Diemen's Land was the name of the official campaign against the black people of Tasmania. Mm -hmm. With the Declaration of Martial Law in November 1828, whites were authorized to kill blacks on sight. They just went, oh, you know what? We're kind of letting everybody just just turning their Blind eye. Blind eye. Yeah. They're like... Uh, you know what? Let's let's finish what we started. By 1830, the Aborigines were reduced from an estimated 5,000 people to less than 75. Wow. So between 1828 and 1830, they went from 5,000 to 75. Seems they to be that way. They killed 4,925 Aboriginal peoples in 24 months. An article published December 1st, 1826 in the Tasmanian Colonial Times declared, We make no pompous display of philanthropy. The government must remove the natives. If not, they will be hunted down like wild beasts and destroyed. They put that in the paper. Yeah. You know, the penny savers changed a lot over the years. I'm guessing at this point they just didn't think they were human beings. They just, they're they're the wild men that live in this island. They're animals. But here's the thing. I don't like pigeons, but I don't go out and kill them. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, can't you just coexist? Can't you just live next to a guy that you don't like or you don't think is particularly human and not kill them? So then from turning a blind eye yeah, mm-hmm. to authorizing, to <laughs> we go to declaring a bounty on. Okay. The government declared a bounty on blacks, and black catching soon became a big business. Five pounds for each adult and two pounds for each child. Oh, well, no wonder they got, they, they, they got a little gun happy. All right, now, now I see. 
they actually put a bounty on their heads and made it profitable to hunt the black people. Yes. So after the Black War, as it was called, the remainder of the Aborigines were rounded up and placed in camps for their own safety. In 18... 18- <laughs> the last 75 of them. Yeah. In 1830, a Christian missionary was hired to take the remaining Tasmanian blacks to Flinders Island. By 1843, only 50 survived. Robinson was determined to civilize and Christianize the survivors, and mm-hmm. his settlement was run like a jail. No, nothing speaks Christian moral values than, like, imprisoning yeah. and torturing and killing. Malnutrition was a matter of course, and few infants survived more than a few weeks. By 1869, there were only two women and one man from the original Aboriginal Tasmanians left okay. alive. You can repopulate with two women and one man. Mm-hmm. That dude that dude gets to be the happy guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he gets to hump all he wants. Silver lining. How easy is it to talk them into a three-way? Huh? Last, when there's only last, three, you, you're the last blacks on earth? Last friend gone. <laughs> like, I mean, come on. With the steady decrease in the number of aborigines, white people began to take a bizarre interest in the blacks, whom whites believed to be a missing link between humans and apes. Yeah, because they're the savages that remind <laughs> us of horrible animals. <laughs> yeah, Fuck. <laughs> William Lanny, also known as King Billy, was the last full-blood male Tasmanian. As the last male Tasmanian, Lanny was regarded as a human relic, and January 1860, he was introduced to Prince Albert. On March 2nd, 1868... So kind of like a circus. Yeah. You know, kind of like, hey, come and see the last remaining black Tasmanian. On March 2nd, 1868, he died in his room at the Dog and Partridge Public House in Hobart, Tasmania. As his body lay in the colonial hospital, two persons claiming to act in the interest of the Royal Society of Tasmania tried to take possession of his bones. On the day of his funeral, a body snatching was expected. It was decided that nothing should be left worth taking, so Lanny's hands and feet were cut off, and his skull was sent away for study. <laughs> what, people don't like thoraxes anymore? Like they can't find 5,000, how many did we start out with? Yeah, four. Tasmanian the, skulls around? Yeah. Did you look a little? Well, well he, he was the last one, though. They yeah. wanted, and they wanted the king, right? Like, this is the king. No, I don't think he actually was the king. I, I think, think his name is so They, they him call him Billy. the king because yeah. he was, well, he was the last. Right? He was the last. Like, yeah, it's like, who, if he's not the king, who is? Yeah. You're both the richest and the poorest. It, it doesn't Tasmanian. matter. It doesn't matter what line he was in to become king yeah, in right. the yeah. royal hereditary, hereditary <laughs> lineage. It's, yeah. Everybody else is dead, so he's it, now the king. He's now the king. Right. On May 7th, 1876, Queen Truganini, the last full blood black person in Tasmania, died at 73 years of age. Her mother had been stabbed to death. Her sister had been kidnapped and never returned. Her intended husband was drowned by two, two Europeans in her presence, and then his murderers raped her. Oh! Don't let them cut me up, she begged the doctor as she lay dying. After her burial, Truganini's body was exhumed. Her skeleton was strung up on wires and became the most popular exhibit in the Tasmanian Museum, which remained on display until guess what year? This is from 1876 until? Uh, 1976. Oh, 1947. Oh, okay. But in 1976, despite the museum's objections, her skeleton was cremated and her ashes scattered at sea. Oh, so I got 1976 right in one regard. (laughs) So that is the story of the Black War, the destruction of the Tasmanian Aborigines. That is horrible. That's really horrible. Like, because there was, it really was just like, ah, we just don't want them around. So we're going to put a bounty on their head. Yeah, and they're not human. And, uh... Yeah, well, there were 65,000... Do the most horrible things we can possibly think of to them. (laughs) It was 65,000 Europeans, and there were 5,000 them. How can you just not, like, you know, I got a black neighbor? It's just an example that you can teach humans anything. And if you teach them that black people are not 
human beings, then you grow up to be an adult who thinks that black people aren't human beings. And then your whole culture works that way. But even even that, there's a pretty big leap from this guy isn't a full human to to, I have to kill. I have to cut his balls off and watch him run around until he dies. I don't want anything around here that isn't fully human. And I have to find the queen and rape her and drown her fiance. Right. And that's still a giant leap forward. Right. Right. I, I agree. Or... A giant lean backwards, more like it. Yeah, I don't. Please don't think I'm defending. <laughs> I'm just explaining. Oh uh, no, I think I just heard Joe defend genocide. You can program human beings to be terrible, and society tends to do that. And that's why I think that we have to work on programming programming ourselves to not be terrible. It shouldn't be this hard. I, it, but it is. Uh, Welcome to the real no. world. Uh, and it's not just white people doing it. Uh, I have the story of the Moriori. Okay. Uh, the archipelago of the Chatham Islands consists of about 10 islands located about 800 kilometers east of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, in November 1835, a British ship carrying 500 Maori armed with guns, clubs, and axes arrived, followed by another ship in December with a further 400 Maori. One of the first acts of the Maori invaders was to kill a 12-year-old girl and hang her flesh on posts. Why is a British ship bringing a bunch of Maori over to... Maori. The Maori in New Zealand, I think, worked hand in hand with the colonizers. Like, if I remember my history correctly, you know, there was always like local bands, like even in North America, that would cooperate with right. colonists. Much to the detriment later on. Much, and much to the detriment, they did it so that they could, the Europeans could help them wipe out all the other tribes right. that they were at war with. Right. And I think that was the Maori in New Zealand. Okay. So the British kind of like, when, they, when they, they would say to the British, Hey, you know, we'll not attack you if you help us attack everybody else so we can become King Kamehameha of New Zealand. Right. Okay. The invaders ritually killed some 10% of the population, a ritual that included staking out women and children on the beach and leaving them to die in great pain over several days. So it's kind of like the version of crucifixion. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Parties of warriors walked through Moriori tribal territories and informed the inhabitants that their land had been taken at the, and that the Moriori living there were now slaves. So these are basically like, they're like the worst two-year-olds in the world. They're two-year-olds with war clubs. Because it is like, mine, right. mine, mine, now, mine. You're, gonna, you're telling me that the Maori roll in. Yeah. They start slaughtering this other tribe. They, they kill a 12-year-old guess, and hang her flesh on posts. You know what? This is the kind of thing that happened in Polynesia right. amongst other tribes before yeah. Europeans ever showed up. Right. So what makes this, this different? Isolated from the mainland New Zealand, the Moriori had developed a unique culture based on a law of peace. This was called Nanuku's Law after the chief Nanuku Uenua. And by peace, you mean they like to be chopped up into separate pieces? Uh, well, maybe that was an ironic interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, after seeing bloody conflict between the nearby Hamata people... Uh, King Nanuku banned murder and the eating of human flesh by the Moriori forever. Oh, okay. Uh, oh. And the Moriori actually outnumbered the Maori invaders by over two to one. However, they chose to obey Nanuku's law and did not fight back. They were pacifists. This is like that episode of The Simpsons where Lisa wishes that, that for world peace and then right. the aliens arrive and take over with the boards this and sounds, nails in it. Yeah. This, this sounds kind of like, like an episode of Star Trek, right? Yeah. You know, there's one people being wiped out by like another people and like Kirk can't do yes, anything about it. But in this case, there's no energy being who's protecting <laughs> the peaceful people. That's exactly it, which is why you have genocide and murder and yeah. 12-year-old girls having their flesh being hung off posts and women and children being staked down to the beach to die for several days. So then the question remains, 
why the fuck did the Maori kill them all? I, like, if you walk me. up to a guy, like, imagine, you walk up to a guy, and a guy, like, pulls a gun on you, and you yeah. pull a gun on him, and you're like, pow, you get him first. Yeah. You know, you're like, ah, we're at war. Yeah. But you walk up to a guy with a gun, and he goes, hey, man. I'm peaceful. I'm sure. peaceful. Whatever. And, and they're then, like, I want all your land, and you're not my slave. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a right. pacifist, so. I'm not going to do anything about it. Sure. So I guess so. And then he's just like, ah, screw it. Bang. And yeah. kills you anyway? Uh, Ritually. There's really no doubt that this was a concerted effort to wipe these people out. By 1862, only 101 Moriori out of a population of about 2,000 were left alive. Mm -hmm. After the invasion, Moriori were forbidden to marry other Moriori, nor to have children with each other. The Maori invaders forbade the speaking of the Moriori language. They forced Moriori to desecrate their own sacred sites by urinating and defecating on them. That's a campaign against culture, if I've yeah. ever heard one. Seems disrespectful. <laughs> Many believe... <laughs> seems disrespectful. <laughs> Just, yeah, <it's> a <laughs> Many believe that Tommy Solomon, who died in 1933, was the last Moriori simply because he was the last known Moriori of full blood. However, in the 1980s, it began to be accepted that the Moriori shared the same Polynesian ancestry as the Maori and had living descendants. In the 1990s, Moriori began to rebuild their culture and identity, and the Moriori were recognized as the indigenous people of the Chatham Islands. Interesting. So, so hold on a sec. So, okay, so the Maori move in. Yeah. They kill everybody, and then whatever women are left, they rape them. They, and They have, rape out the, the entire uh, culture, yeah. That they, they rape the, and murder they, the culture into non-existence. Yes. But because they're now with like the science and all the DNA and all that shiznit yeah. that we now have, we, we thought there are two different lineages basically of not really related people. I mean, but, every, everybody's related technically, yes, but yeah. yeah. But they they came from two different uh, like bloodlines right. or whatever. But now they've come to the conclusion that they actually came from the same common root. Yeah. So they're like, okay, all you all you half Maori, half Moriori are actually still Moriori. Or you're not Maori, you're Moriori because... As much as race means anything, yeah. I guess if you want to like create some sort of like cultural identity in your little community, whatever that means, if you find some like value yeah. in it, then why the heck not? It doesn't yeah. hurt anybody, right? Yeah. But that's... Okay, so there's like a movement to revive the Moriori culture. Yeah. All right, okay. So happy ending to this story? They weren't completely wiped out, I guess that's... If that's happy, mm. then, uh, that, then that kind of says what caustic soda requires to be happy, which is very little. Next time on Caustic Soda. All right, I want you to do the Herrero and Namaqua. Who? You. Oh, shit. This is the one with all the German. Okay. Okay. Oh, it's big. Okay. That's a lot to quotes, though. Okay. Yeah. Well, then it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> this will be the funnest genocide story ever. Uh-oh. We are all going to die. <laughs> Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while doing laundry in his mom's basement. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Soda Podcast and email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Usually this would be the part of the episode where we include a funny little outtake, but I'm just going to remind everyone to go to podcastawards.com and vote for Caustic Soda in the education and, uh, oh, what was the other one? Listener's Choice? Best Produced. Best Produced. Categories. Thank you in advance, and good night, everybody.